Bro, it's been like yeah, it's been two, a, two weeks since we really had a two weeks. To chat. Yeah, it's crazy. I ain't gonna lie, man. I missed it. I missed it. We've been talking a little bit. And Me too. I've been trying not to do our whole show every time we talk, which makes our conversations very, very complicated. Like, because I'll start something and you'll be getting around to it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I was like, oh no, why wasn't I recording? Yeah. Uh, anyway, man, how you been, bro? Good, good. Just doing some some traveling and you know. Bouncing around a lot more often than I normally do. How, how was a Metaxas show? It was really good. I I think um, I mean he's a great guy. He's he is a he really is a pretty deep thinker, um, and so the conversations are always. It's, it's he's a really fun guy to talk to. He's well read and and thinking deeply, and then just very courageous. Um, you know, doesn't pull punches. So I, I uh, enjoyed, enjoyed my time with him a lot. Yeah. What'd you guys end up talking about on the show? Cause I haven't seen it yet. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking through lore kind of given an, an, uh, a basic summary of what it is that we're doing, but also why it is that Christians and conservatives um, tend to be so bad in media spaces when we do really well in, um, in talking head and radio, uh, you know, radio show, um, news shows, things like that. But that whenever we try to get into anything that involves more story or poetry or something like that, we basically just fall apart and, um, honestly never don't even complete stuff that we start, um, mm. because we, uh, don't have, we don't really have a um, a theology that sees the value of storytelling. We don't have a theology that sees the humanness of our neighbor and treats it like human humans should be treated as story creatures and uh, poetic, poetically, and in a beauty that uh, honors the humanity, honors the image of God in our neighbor. Um, we don't have anything like that. And the folks on the left, um, especially in the, on the atheistic left, they have a theology that understands that and um, knows exactly how to, how to go about degrading the image of image of God in people. And they put a lot of effort towards that generational effort towards it. Uh And um, you can say Disney is okay. (laughs) Well, it hasn't always been Disney. That's what's I think hard is there. There are times when Disney was had a, their vision was to give families excellent experiences together. You know, so there were times when they Mm. actually, you know, a lot of Christians worked there and moved there and, and, you know, some of the great, some of their greatest artists and storytellers have been Christians because their, their company's stated goal and the goal of Christians meshed up and went together. Um, It's not that way anymore, right? They have, they have moved away from the earlier intentions uh, that, that they had, um, you know, especially because you, you have guys like Glenn Keane, um, 
who just brilliant artists, deep, deep, thoughtful Christians doing amazing stuff. The last thing that he did for Disney um, was called Duets, and it's a short about a boy, uh, a, a boy growing up into a man and a girl growing up into a woman and their story you know, coming together and creating a family. And it's, it's so beautiful and it's subvert. It's, but now it's, I mean, it would be really subversive, (laughs) but yeah, I'm, and however, I don't know how he thinks about it. I think he's just, you know, he's an artist, a storyteller and he, but all through the, all through his, drawings you know he makes notes on which scripture verse he's trying to encapsulate oh, in different wow. mom- moments in you know he was a, he was one of the head artists in beauty and the beast and so he's got these the scripture verses on his notes um you know when he's trying to encapsulate the, uh, a particular verse in the movements and the visuals that the beast is walking through and because oh. beauty and the beast is a Deep, it's a deeply Christian fairy tale. Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Um, you mean to tell me this guy is a theonomist? I'm sorry, I just, I just. <laughs> well, <laughs> give me I, I a mean, moment. I'm gonna find a way know. to toss I it think, in. I think in that broad definition, he is right yeah. where the where the scriptures where the scriptures inform everything. But it, um, but what most theonomists miss is he's he's saying the scriptures should inform what it how it is that we um make something beautiful right yes. so he's yes. you know, he he's when he goes to draw the final conversion of the beast back into a prince um you know he he's drawing on the story you know on paul in in uh first corinthians on the how it how is it that conversion why is it the conversion so beautiful well it's because it actually affects us all the way from the core outward, right? That it's not something, you know, when Paul says that I, I didn't come to you with a set of rules trying to change you from the outside in, instead the spirit changed you from the inside out, right? Your desires, what you considered to be beautiful and good and all of that was shifted and changed so that when you looked at Jesus, you saw the reality of the fact that he is um he is beauty right he is the uh, most most beautiful he's the full representation the full um the the full incarnation of the the weight of the glory of god right so the um and so when he draws the last conversion of beauty and the uh, of the beast in beauty and the beast the light actually pierces the heart first and then works its way through the rest of his body and lifts mm. him up. It's a really beautiful moving moment, a moving scene. And in his sketchbook, he, um, and even, even it, he, he actually wrote the verse that he was, that had inspired how he was going to make that moment reflect reality in a beautiful way, right? Reflect the reality of how, who God is and how he made the world in a beautiful way. So, you have that you you had you had but but Christians were basically spread out into the world the way that they were supposed to doing their work and doing their labor and you know uh, Chrysostom says that um, that yeast can't work unless it's combined with the loaf so 
that, that we're supposed to actually combine ourselves into um, into society because the gospel is more powerful than whatever is going on. You know, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. So we can trust that our gospel presence, wherever God puts us, is going to be the most powerful thing in the office. You know, it's going to permeate wherever we land. Uh, you know, the most powerful thing on the job site. Um, yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Can we, can we, can we put a, I, I want to talk about that for a second because here's, I think we were talking about this week on the phone. Um, maybe some of my, um, recession into dispensationalism or my, um, <laughs> my, uh, I couldn't imagine. I can see why Peter sunk when he started walking on water. Right. Like, right. Oh yeah. Like, you totally. know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm gonna keep my eyes on Jesus. Oh my goodness. What am I, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, I, I had one of those moments where it's like, you know, we've been talking and I'm seeing the whole world differently. I'm seeing, you probably understand this when, when you start getting a revelation of how the beauty of, of actually what you guys are talking about, the beauty of everything, the beauty of the way that God made the world, uh, you start understanding lunar spirits. <laughs> you, start, <laughs> you start thinking about um, cosmology, you start seeing this stuff. All of a sudden, when you start talking, you start talking and you look at other people's faces and they look at you like you've lost your mind. And you're, right. and you're like, uh-oh, I don't know how to communicate all of this well, or uh-oh, they're not ready for it. I feel like, you know, uh, McFly, you, you're not ready for it, but your kids are going to love it. You know, like, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> you know, I, I have that moment, but I want to put a pin and I want to talk about that for a second because there's another half of that. I, I sent you something this week and I, I, I don't see you get upset very much. Um, <laughs> But this got yeah. to you. Yeah, I don't see. Yeah, you're not a kind of guy that gets upset or has temper flares or anything. But I sent you something that made you lose it, and I'm going to play it for you. So I want you for the next 40 seconds to hold on to something tight, Jason. Get in a room that you can't destruct. Maybe outside, find a tree, and try not try your best not to punch anything and hurt yourself. Okay, so here we go. Right. Okay, I'm ready. Immediately became creedal. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, or maybe you memorized a different creed as a child. The Apostles' Creed is an extraordinary piece of theology that, that states so many things that are so important to theology and to Christendom. The problem with that creed, along with other creeds, is there is no mention of love. In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all. You could subscribe to that creed and basically do anything you wanted. And there was a reason the creeds were that way. Is because the creeds were generally signed off on by the emperor and the emperors had bad behaviors so the church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be very careful what they put into the christians christian creeds <laughs> now that was andy uh, stanley who yeah i am concerned about his salvation I'm not gonna lie to you i am a little bit concerned because i don't know if he knows what christianity is at all anymore but i sent you that right and you flipped out bro <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> I am. I am okay. And it wasn't really, um, it wasn't necessarily even like an, a not a, just a simple emotional response. No, no. That was, it, it, it was, it, but it's so, it's so wrong. Um, 
everywhere, right? Everything about it is wrong. And that's what's so difficult, right? When he says, uh, he's, oh, so it's hard to even know where to start. It's so bad. But um, he, well, the, play it again. I can play it again. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he says there's no mention of love, uh, there's no mention of behavior at all, was well, because the gospel is not behavior modification, right? That's not the good news. And that it really is, that's what we think we're doing so often when we, we, we go out and we say, well, you know, what's the good news? Say, so, well, you know, love one another and you know, you could be better. And, you know, um, you, you think that's literally, that's bad news. If that's the good news, <laughs> um, that we think that somehow good advice is good news, um, then we have gotten it completely twisted around, right? So what Andy Stanley's proving is that he is a deep Pharisee, which is usually what's at the back of that kind of antinomianism, right? So that, that antinomianism is really just picking a different set of Pharisaical um, rules and regulations to save yourself by, than the, than the other Pharisees. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, the, the, you don't get the option of, of uh, the, like antinomianism is, is actually so untenable um, that when you, when it comes down to it, it's actually just a different form of Phariseeism in practice every single time. And um, that, that he's, he's preaching a Pharisaical gospel. He's saying, what's the good news? Love, behavior modification, that's the good news. And he's saying it out loud. We usually try and hide it. But he's just hes just in a place where apparently that is going to get him. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's so bad that I can't, it's hard to even... To, figure out like okay you said you said the quiet part out loud um, do you think there has been a push away from creeds like when i was growing up coming to christendom um creeds were they weren't bad but it was like yeah they're wooden and i think that's kind of what he's trying to get at it's like there is this woodenness to the creeds that don't have relationship involved in them i'm trying to be reasonable um and, and 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 not completely I'm trying to say, okay, if I spend my best time trying to understand Andy Stanley, creeds are wooden. They have more conversation about what God is and no relationship between man involved in them or love of God in them so that you just have these do's and don'ts a part of creeds. And that's what creeds are. There's nothing that's relational inside of creeds, and that's a problem. Don't punch me. Um, Don't punch me. (laughs) Right. So, but but that's that that's a little like saying you know i would i would like to have a relationship with god and then if i said okay well which god they were like that you know it doesn't really matter well i'll, I'll play i'll I'm, play let's play let's play this game i'll, I'll be the other guy okay uh you okay. know uh, jesus is cool Oh, oh! You're you're playing the Adam Stan Andy Stanley side. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm playing the guy who's like you said. It's kind of like saying, uh, uh, you want to have a relationship with God. I want to be the guy who's like who's who's like yeah. I want to have a relationship with God. I'm, I'm gonna 
I, I like which God? Well, I'm I'm gonna pick Jesus. I like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a good oh, God. I mean, right? And so, th- and then you say, well, let you know, if somebody comes in and they're and they say, hey, I think I know your brother. You know, my brother's name is Aaron, and he comes in and says, hey, I think I know your brother. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, big, tall, blonde guy. He's got, you know, um, you know, mm. mustache, and and I'm like, mm, no, no, that's not my brother. My brother's got brown hair and you know, no mustache, and and they're like, yeah, but their names are both Aaron Farley, and I really he's love like, them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I really, I really, I mean, he's a great guy. He's like, I'm sure whoever you're talking about is a great guy, but that's not my brother, right? So the uh, the Apostles' Creed was formed in response to Gnosticism. It was formed as a way of saying, not, we, this is the Jesus that we mean. This is the God that we're talking about. I'm not talking about the God who is the, um, who's at the top of the great chain of being that you're moving towards or away from, depending on if you're using the, the uh, Gnostic playbook right or not. You know, I'm not talking about that God over there. I'm talking about this God, the one who was incarnate under Pontius Pilate, right? So mm. it's a historifying, it's a historifying creed. So it's written in response to Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was the was the great danger uh, of the early church. Surprise. It's come back as the great danger <laughs> of uh, multiple times. Um, and so the Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian. Um, response to the attempt of the Gnostics to dilute um, down to the lowest common denominator when you talk about God. So the, um, but that's exactly what you're doing when you say something like, um, you know, I, I just, I, I want to, I want to live in relationship and not so much in terms of the particular uh, attributes um, and actions of God. Jason, I, I think also too, you're making me think about this a little more. You're helping someone avoid idolatry. Exactly. Right. That's, that's what the, that's what the apostles. So the apostles creed was used as a baptismal creed um, in the early church. And right? so it was used, it was the public profession saying, this is the, the God into whose name I am being baptized. Right. This is the God who is putting his name on me. So when in that context, um, it, it literally is all about relationship. And you're saying it, it, it's like getting up and, you know, saying, let's make sure we take the veil off of this woman before we marry her so that I can say this is the right one. Mm. You know, it's it's a it's it's the the context in which the Apostles' Creed is being written and it and how ignorant, how ignorant he is to say, oh, the um, <laughs> the, the emperor has to sign off on it because he's he's the one paying their salaries. I mean, the Apostles' Creed, it um, is is what, uh, 200 years, 200 and some years before any they were still being. Um, killed by the emperor at that point, right? So um, it's it's incredibly ignorant, um, and 
than to say that's oh, because they wanted to allow the emperors and you know the governors and everybody to be able to stay in their sin. Like, man, you you must have not read read much, <laughs> or if he has, he's a liar, right? He's he is, um, and and it's possible that he's just saying in this context, this is what I would have been doing. So it must be what they were doing. I would be so careful to not you know, um, accidentally you know, uh, look my gift horse in the mouth and, and bite the hand that feeds me. And so I can see how they did that. Right. But the, I mean, it, it, the time period Constantine, when he, um, cause he does show up at the Nicene Creed, he brings up this old, old pastor who'd had his eyes plucked out by the previous um, but what the previous administration, I guess you call it, he'd had his eyes removed. He'd been burned mm. uh, alive. You know, he's, he's still living. Constantine brings him up, um, kneels before him, stands up and kisses him on both of the eyes and honors this man who rather than um, deny Christ uh, went through the torture of the previous emperor Right. And Constantine honors this man and says, this is the man that we should all be showing honor to. Right? An emperor kneeling in front of anyone is unheard of, unheard of. And for him to be kneeling in front of this particular man who the empire had um, had tortured to, to the point of, you know, he was now this blind, uh, old, deformed man saying this is the man that we that we're that I'm, I want to show honor to and kneeling in front of him and kissing him on his plucked out eyes. Uh, it's such a different situation than what Andy Stanley is dealing with, but he's talking about the world as if the world is simply, he's, I mean, he's, he's a Machiavellian in his description of that whole thing, that this world is a power struggle. Um, and that, that, that the, that the church just happens to be one of the people struggling for that power. And um, mm. who are they struggling with? Well, they're struggling with whoever the highest power is in this sense it's the emperor. That has never, that, is, that hasn't, I mean, it has been the relationship of the church to the world at different times, but that's when it, things have gone terribly wrong. And if you look at the people that wrote the Nicene Creed and say, that was an example of that going terribly wrong, then uh, you don't know, the kind of men that God raised up at that point in history to stand down, um, to face down the uh, powers of the world. You know, uh, part of um, part of what's bothering me in some of this is not that Andy Stanley is saying stupid stuff because I said Andy Stanley, so you should get stupid stuff that comes from when I say a name like that. But the other part of me is how other people are answering it. I don't think that they are answering it in the way, same way. Where it's like it's answering it that way. I I think part of also too what I think the problem is. I've been reading. You had me on this immediate mind of of C.S. Lewis, and yep. and bro, this goes back to our earlier conversation. Two things. I don't know where to start. I just I just throw it out there. I got you for about another forty forty five minutes. And I, I, I just kind of rapid fire a bunch of stuff at you, okay? <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm just, I got like seven things here. I'm just going to like rapid fire at you. But I want to start here. Part of the problem that I'm seeing 
is like in the third chapter of the medieval mind of C.S. Actually, the first, second, third. <laughs> I yeah. love them. But I've really found this part fascinating. I think in the second or third chapter, the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis is the mechanization of the world picture, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he makes, one of the uh, one of the things that he sets forth is how people accept the world. Do they accept the world as a symphony or as a mechanism? And depending on how they and take embrace the world, accept the world that's given to them. If they accept it as a mechanism, then through mechanism they be they begin to treat people like machines. And it changes right. the, the humanity of the individual versus as a song that everyone in one way or another is participating in, you know, or, or a symphony um, of or something that's beautiful, something that's organized, something, you know. Um, and I think when you have embraced the world as a mechanism, then you start talking like Andy Stanley. Yes. Right. Right. Because it, because you look at the forces, uh, the forces in the world that are forming things into the shape that they are, and you look at politics, economics, power, uh, and say those are the forces that are that have shaped the shaped the world into its current state, mm-hmm. right? Um, rather than saying, um, okay. The spirit is the great is the conductor of this symphonic choir that he is forming, right? The all of creation is the symphony, and mankind is the choir that's being built up to sing, uh, to sing over the symphony of creation. And this this is, you know, Maximus the Confessor. This is Boethius. This is the the older the the guys that formed the cosmological assumptions that the medieval world was built on. They talked in terms of symphonies, choirs, music, and and that the spirit is the great breath within it. The, the the spirit is the one that that plays the instrument of creation, and um, into the instruments of creation into the symphonic form that they're made to be in, and he is the one that breathed the scriptures as well. Mm. And he's, and then he's the one that has protected the scriptures. And then he's the one that has protected the church through the uh, building of both the, the institution as well as the, the um, things like the creeds, you know, the the ecumenical creeds, the, you've got this, this, uh, the the he and he's raising up heresies in order to clarify the understanding of the church mm. when it begins to go awry, right? So that so that even the heresies are a part of the great story, the great symphony, the way that the music the the heresies are those points where the music um, gets dissonance so that it can resolve. Mm. So the Nicene Creed are these great moments of resolution in the history uh, in the symphonics story that is being told the musical story of history um so and when you read somebody like philip schaff um you can see he he is he tells the story in that sort of way right 
that you've got these different um, theologians that God raises up, some of them being um, terribly wrong so that they can be corrected publicly because that public correction, which comes in the creeds, is the way that the the church clarifies what she has always believed, right? But that it had gotten wobbly on or was in direct um, opposition to, to an assumption that they were bringing in from the world that they weren't aware they were bringing in. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, so it, I mean, it's, and this is what you should actually mean when you talk about the sovereignty of God, right? We tend to think of the sovereignty of God in mechanistic distant categories Hmm. right um rather than in the the intimate presence the intimate guiding presence of the holy spirit everywhere in all times in all places right so the um we 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 will talk about the sovereignty of god and the pre and predestination as if they're the same thing predestination is something that happened at the beginning and then is is working its way out through history. Sovereignty is something that is happening continually, right? So it, there's a plan that is that is all set, but the sovereignty has to do with the continued presence of the Holy Spirit every, everywhere, in all times, in all places, in a guiding sense, right? That that um, and the metaphors that you get sometimes are you know he's the wind and the sails of history, you, you're guiding the ship. He's the he, but it's the the idea that the spirit is present everywhere intimately you know, as clo- you know closer to ourselves than we are um, as the scriptures say but in a way that is with the power of guidance and control you know um, so not so not in a we, we, we will talk about sovereignty. Calvinists can be really bad about this in that sense that God wound the clock up and now it's running, right? Like it's a machine. But that's, that's an enlightenment metaphor system that we don't realize we're swimming in mm. and so that we use and borrow from the world. It's a, it's a form of worldliness. It's funny you bring that up because that's exactly what I was about to ask about next. <laughs> What is Calvinism? <laughs> I, you know, we were talking about this because you bring it right to Calvinism. Man, um, okay, you better be happy. I got one on here that I know is going to make my Baptist friends really, really mad. And so I, I, um, I, I'm trying – we might not get to this one. But would you – when we talk about Calvinism, I've noticed um, – I when I became a Calvinist um, – I was a Calvinist and didn't know I was a Calvinist. I just didn't know the term or like the term. So much was around it. I just didn't, you know, I'm not, I don't want to yeah. actually what it ended up being at the end of the day, Jason was, wasn't whether or not I believe the sovereignty of God or whether I believe that God chose elected people, all that stuff like that. It was that I didn't want to have to fight the battles that I saw inside of Calvinism. And so I didn't want the right. title because I didn't want to have to be able to defend that battle because that's what I claim to be. And to be honest, that's right. exactly the same thing I see inside of theonomy. People are like, I don't want to fight the battles that are inside of the enemy, whatever. I just want to believe the Bible and I want to apply it. Got it. Right. But when I became a Calvinist, 
I, the first entry point to Calvinism really was election. And so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I'd already believed God's sovereignty. That wasn't a problem for me. And God's electing power. I was like, okay, okay I, I can see that seems biblical. But that's where it kind of, I think that's where most people end up stopping at is um, Tulip. No, I'm a Calvinist. That's it. But yeah, as we talk about Calvinism, it's so much more than that. Would you kind of work through like, what is Calvinism? Well, this is, this is one of those things that, you know, when people say, hey, are you a Calvinist? I always say, do I get to define that the word or do you get to? Right? Where, you know, can we use the historical definition or do we have to use whatever definition is running in your head right now when you ask that question? Mm. And, <laughs> um, and so um, I, I, depending on the situation, there's a couple of different summaries for Calvinism that I use. One of them is I, I just say, well, Here's I says, just one question. Do you have to say thank you for everything about your salvation? Right? Or is there a part that you don't have to say thank you for? And if they say, yeah, you have to say thank you for it all, I say, well, that's Calvinism. Mm. Right? <laughs> when it comes to the doctrine of the, of the, uh, uh, the doctrines of grace, um, which is, a, I prefer that term to, uh, tulip, although I don't think tulip is bad, it just it it is derived from the five things that the uh, that the reformed professor um, in Dort named uh, Arminius the five things that his students said they disagreed with the creeds because they had had Arminius for a teacher, right? So whether or not Arminius even held to um, Arminianism is there's a whole um, question about that because right. he wasn't even the one that formed the five the the five uh, disagree points of disagreement his students did and because um, he was he remained a reformed professor you know throughout his life and was never kicked out or anything and um, it, so but but the canons of Dort that were formed to, to say no. Here is the reason that that the creed. Here's the biblical de- uh, the biblical defense of those five points of the creeds. Those became um, definitive at, as as if they were the central thing that set the Reformed Church apart, um, rather than what they were, which was the five things on the edge that some people were struggling with that the church got together and said, well, no, here's a biblical defense of, right? And, and I hold the canons of Dort. I believe that they are a true biblical summary of those doctrines, um, but they weren't the heart of the matter. Um, so, because the other, the other uh, definition that I like to use um, is that, that Calvinism is, is a, uh, uh, a Northern European extension of the Christian humanist movement that started in the 1300s um, in Italy. <laughs> right. So you have this humanist movement that begins to uh, form when the fall of Constantinople happens and all of these Eastern Orthodox uh, priests gather up their libraries, stuff them into saddlebags and and flee the the Muslim hordes that are taking over and renaming it end up renaming it Istanbul, 
right? So what was consonant in Antinople is now Istanbul. People just like it better that way. And so they, they changed the name, and it becomes a Muslim center uh, of, of culture, mostly building on the Christian culture that was there already. Has to. But the priests, <laughs> yeah, right? But, but the Christian priests that were there, they, they know that the reputation of the Islamic hordes is that they destroy art, they destroy books, they destroy um, everything like that. And so um, they gathered up their books, they hid them, and they, they ran for it. And so there's a couple of things that happen, right? You've got the Christian humanist movement, which is going in Italy, which is, is um, a flowering of Christian arts and uh, scholarship because of the, the amount, the, the length of peace that they had had, right? They've, they've had this long uh, period of peace and the church had, had been, you know, you've got education growing, you've got, um, this peaceful, how uh, this peaceful time um, where uh, people start realizing, oh my gosh, there's this whole new artistic flourishing going on, and it begins to spread. And then at the same time, you've got this introduction of a whole new set of library, uh, a whole all these new libraries, new books of Christian thought that flood in, as well as some classical texts that they didn't have before. Um, and you, you have uh, the introduction of, of uh, some uh, ancient classical Greek texts uh, through some new relationships that are built with African libraries um, that, uh, that were uh, with um, Muslim universities. Right? So you've got this influx of knowledge, of new expansive uh, knowledge that causes a lot of people to um, to uh, get really excited about scholarship, and um, you know, you add that together with uh, then the forward movement of the mechanization of printing and and things. And so you've got this learning that explodes everywhere. Well, the humanist movement in that in that setting, they were the ones that had the a theology to justify uh, what was going on, to justify the expansion of knowledge, to justify um, the interaction with uh, Muslim libraries, with Greek Orthodox, to, um, and with the classical texts, because what they said is every person is made in the image of God, and so every person is an opportunity to um, learn more about God, right? So they... Um, and within that setting, you also had, um, as Protestantism kicks off, right out of that, uh, that humanist movement, every single one of the major Protestant reformers was educated in those humanist schools that began in that, the 1300s with the Brethren of the Common Life. They'd spread throughout Europe, and they were educating the, the, um, people to read, educating people to value books, value uh, literature value history because God is at work in history, right? So the study of history is the study of God's actions, right? The study of the spirit's um, sovereignty. Every person was made in the image of God. So the study of humanity and the works of humanity is a study of, uh, uh, is a window into the way 
God is. And then you add to that, um, as Protestantism kicks off, um, the belief that the, that the gospel or the, the, the central, the centralizing, um, moving, moving the gospel to the central, uh, to one of its central ideas is that in Christ, our humanity is restored to its original intention, right? So Calvin kicks off his institutes with that beautiful paragraph about how to know God. Um, we have to know ourselves and to know ourselves, we have to know God, right? That God is a, he is revealing himself in history, right? This is anti-Gnosticism to the core. Where is it that we see God? We see him in our neighbor. Uh, we, we, you know, we see him in, in the image of our neighbor and we see him at work in history. And then we see him in the literature of the scriptures, right? And then, and they didn't have a, uh, the Northern European Protestants didn't develop as much of an understanding of God uh, revealed in creation as some of the other places. Um, but what that leads to is this central understanding that the covenant of God with his creation and then the covenant of God with his people that he then develops over time throughout history in his interactions with people is the backbone of all knowledge, all understanding, and all uh, all of the authority structures of the world, and the it's the uh, backbone of the uh, church and the understanding of the gospel. Right? So when you've got somebody that comes along and says, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, but doesn't have that plant, or, you know, and takes their tulip and plants it in something in other soil that is not the covenant, the deep covenantal understanding of everything and the Christian humanism that says the spirit of God is revealing himself throughout creation, throughout history, um, within uh, my neighbor, through the image, the image of himself and my neighbor, uh, and then tries to plant that tulip some other place, you basically get a different flower <laughs> it's not really reformed theology anymore. It's not really Calvinism anymore. Uh, we have a lot of non-Calvinism that claims to be Calvinism, man. Right. We really do. Right. I think a lot of that, the young, restless and reformed movement was really, um, it really was a, a kind of, of uh, um, stoicism or, you know, fatalism. Um, where you've got all of these young dudes that feel that fatalistic um, that that fatalistic knowledge of I don't you know, uh, almost a dislodged fatalism, and then somebody was like, "You're talking about Calvinism," and they're like, "Okay, cool, we're talking about Calvinism," and um, they said, "I guess we're all Calvinists," and but it it was their what they describe when they talk about Calvinism is actually fatalism, which was condemned the Council of Orange. And wait, wait, um, wait, work that out for me when you say it's fatalism, because I think that they where they learned that from. I don't think anybody told them what that was. I think what they learned it from was the people who were before them, and they just acted on it in a way that resembled how they understood what Calvinism was, just with the cooler edge. Right. Yeah. I mean, they had more tattoos 
Right. Um, when we say it's fatalism, the, what do you so, mean? Yeah, what do you mean by that? So, so fatalism is that is um, the understanding that everything is going to land the way it's going to land, and it can't land any other way in a mechanistic context, mm. right? So, so um, out not because of the the spirit's intimate interaction with everything. Right. So not because the spirit is guiding and directing and changing course according to his will. Um, the, because so in fatalism, free will um, is an illusion. Right. So we free will is is not it is um, is not real. Right. right. It's an illusion. We're just billiard balls that happen to be bouncing around and Christian fatalism is when God was the one that started the process, right? He's the one that wound the process up and let it go. Non-Christian fatalism is when the the cosmic forces of fate or the mm-hmm. cosmic forces of physics, the cosmic forces, whatever the cosmic forces are, are the ones that caused it to end the way it is. But there's no other way for it to go than the way that it ends up, right? So it's, Fatalism is a Christian is sovereignty in the wrong cosmology. Mm. How do you? So how do you? Oh, go ahead. Prayer, prayer doesn't make any sense. Um, call a, a, a calling on the spirit to act doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, praying for your neighbor's conversion. Ultimately, sharing the gospel quits making sense. Um, in, well, in that I don't think setting. I don't think people would ever say that, but then right, you know, Ult- yeah, that's what I mean. Ultimately, you you start looking around, right, and you say, "Oh man, well, Sarah, 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 Sarah." If they're elect, they'll get saved, and I, and nobody wants, says that up front, but there, but that is the end of that road. So then, how do you keep from fatalism? If you know that, well, God's going to be sovereign anyway, he's going to do what he's going to do. So I'm just here for the ride. How do you keep from, cause that's a form of fatalism, right? Right. Yeah. So well, how- cause right. I, so I, I'm just, it's a um, walk in the spirit versus in the flesh sort of situation. Right. So the reason that things are turning out the way they're turning out is because the spirit of God is so intimately involved in in everything everywhere. The insult that the Roman Catholics used to level against John Calvin was they called him obsessed with the spirit. Right? They called him the the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He was so obsessed with the presence <laughs> of the spirit and right and you think what a kind of insult. That sounds like a great insult. Um, but uh, the the um, but the reason is because in a covenantal understanding of the world you have you don't have a um things don't have to turn out the way they're going to turn out right that it's you don't have the you if you keep the covenant then blessings come if you break the covenant then curses, curses. come yeah. because be, because the spirit is right there with you all the mm, time okay right so it's not a, there isn't, there isn't, there aren't cosmic forces of fate and physics causing everything to turn out the way they're turning out. The spirit is right there. And, and we 
are a part of what brings the future into pass, right? So um, Calvin says, if you're concerned to know what the future is going to be like, look at your prayers. That's the force that God uses to form it. That that does not sound like young, restless, and reformed Calvinism, right? Uh, that says, you know, hey, wh- what what are you complaining about? God's sovereign. So, you know, yeah, this is terrible, but God's sovereign. So I'm sure it's going to work out for good in the, at the end of time. <laughs> I think this, I was going to, I'm going to, I was going to ask you about that and the effect that it has on our apologetics, particularly presuppositional apologetics. But I think this is a good time to bring up what we were talking about earlier, because as I look and I'm watching uh, the last two years, watch COVID come in and ramsack us, split us, divide us, watch the social justice movement rip through Christianity. I can see if it took down some of the unreformed versions of Christianity, but reformed Christianity, it shouldn't have had such an effect on us as it has that it split us right down the middle and people who hold to a very consistent reformed doctrine amongst them, right? They all will agree doctrinally. Um, even Presbyterians, like it's just amazing how the, the social justice movement, critical race theory, intersection, all this stuff has just ripped right through us. And, and so that, and then you, you add on top of it, just culturally what we've seen with no one trusts the elections or we can't trust the election before Trump. It was like Hillary couldn't trust the election. Everything was rigged by the elections. And then after Trump is like, ah, oh, we can't trust the elections. This is rigged elections. So you have both sides arguing at each other. You have this outstanding amount of IRS agents that have just been commissioned from our Congress. And I haven't found a Democrat yet. That's like, yeah, we wanted that. And, on, and we, so I don't know who's commissioning this. I, somehow it passed. I don't know how. And you, you see the FBI raiding Trump's. I mean, just everything is like gone. Right. And there's no question. Right. There's no question that we have jumped out of the plane at 30,000 feet without a parachute. And all we're doing at this point is observing our fall. So the conservative movement are deconstructing what it is that's going on. They're like, so this is what it looks like when you follow the plane. You see those mountains over there? They're going to get closer. This is going to, and everybody's deconstructing the situation from right to left and they're observing it properly. Something's wrong. Something's broken. Yeah. We're jumping out of the plane. And, no one has any answers to fix the doggone problem. <laughs> and it's like, well, when you jump out of a plane without a parachute, there really aren't many options. <laughs> right. Yeah. The option is the option is fall. Yeah. That's the only option you have. Like, and, you, and some people are saying we should probably, um, you know, if we wave our flags really hard, then it'll all hold together. You know, you've got that sort of, that sort of nationalistic argument. And then you've got uh, people on the other side that are like, hooray, this is what we've all been waiting for. This place needs to crash and burn anyway. Right? But you don't really have um, anyone that's like, huh, what would it look like to not <laughs> not be falling right now? Crash, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to not, to, you know, but, but I, I mean, and this is, this is what's difficult because on the one side you say, well, what's the, 
what's the issue? What's, I think it's obvious that we are under a curse. Right? And this is what it looks like for God to have said, ah, here's, here comes a, a covenantal curse. Right? And not because, not because there's something special about America, but because every nation is in covenant with God. Right, the, and so this is. Uh, other nations have had the exact same problem, right? They they broke covenant with God, the co- the covenant that God established um, with Noah, and then handed over to Jesus. Right, so Jesus is he's the King of Kings. He's the King of every nation, and so when he's got his rod that he's holding, and um, the nation starts devouring one another or the powerful start devouring the weak which is what's going on in our setting then the then jesus says yeah, i'm not going to put up with that for long and he starts whacking it with the rod and i think in our setting you know the that you had the you, you would look at leviticus the leprosy laws but when the house has leprosy the priest comes in and he looks at it and he cleans it out and then he goes away and then he comes back. And if it's grown back, he knocks down the house. Right. Um, and I think that that pattern that God has established in dealing with, uh, it is, is a historical pattern that God, that, that Christ does or deals with. Right. And I, so I think that you had, um, him, you know, Jesus come and visit and clean out the house and then come back again and look and oh, the, the leprosy is still here. So I, people might disagree on when, when Jesus really, you know, visited by the power of the spirit, but I'm, I think it was in the Jesus people movement. I think it was a real, real visit from God, a real cleansing of the church. And then, what has happened is that the all, the evangelical church has basically just returned to modernism. You know, returned God God cleansed it, sent a bunch of converted hippies into all of these churches, and said, "Hey, everybody, wake up!" And they looked around there like, "You're right, we should wake up." And now the exact same thing that happened shortly before that they that swept through the. Um, major denominations in the country, the modernism, the the Machiavellian modernism, has is sweeping through the rest of the church, or again, or sweeping through now the non-denominationals and all of the all of the churches that once were strong evangelical churches, and so the uh, so Jesus looks back again and says, "Well, we got to knock the house down, right? The 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 leprosy is." is into the walls. Um, now, God also raises the dead, right? So he doesn't knock down without plans to rebuild. But that's, that's how he does that. That's, that's, what he, that's what God has been doing all throughout history. But you, see, you see it over and over and over. Um, can, is, this, so, is this part of the, of the symphony where the dissonant notes are being hit and we can hear those and mm-hmm. you know, the Holy spirit is like, this is a dissonant note right here, baby. Uh, <laughs> yep, yeah. Where, but, it, but the, the dissonant, the dissonance comes in when we try to sing our own part, right? We want to sing something different than what God gave us to sing. 
But as the mm. overarching writer of the symphony, that all turns around and ends up being a part of the chord progression that resolves beautifully. Right? That's part of the, the way that God ends up mm. working the symphony out is we stand up and we say, we won't sing our parts that you have assigned. We try to sing our own part. And then, and, and then pretty soon we, the, the music goes on and we're like, oh, dang it, it turned out to work perfectly in the s- symphonic story um, that, that God is telling with creation and humanity as his instruments and choir. Right, so even even our resistance turns out to be a part of the chord progression, uh, and that's that's the understanding of sovereignty that, in which the spirit is intimately involved in it all. Right, that it's not, um, and that our will is actively involved in all of it. Right, so um, we tend to think of free will like um, you know, like you've got a bucket full of golf balls and in order to get uh, a God's will is, is, you know, a soccer ball. And so in order to get his will into the bucket, you've got to take all of the, all of the golf balls out. Right. So either his will fits or our will fits, but his will and our will are of different kinds because his is the will of an uncreated creator an independent in terms of his metaphysic god is independent he is he is not a thing um that is dependent um he is he is no thing because all of the things are created by him right so his is a, a different sort of will altogether that doesn't displace or dislodge our will it supersedes oversees um uh, uh, overshadows but it doesn't displace so our will is a part of the way that that um the future comes to pass um and as the the friends of god right his people we're his we're the friends of god um and that means that is a that's a a legal covenantal term that has to do with always invited to advise the authority Right. So the friend of the king was the was the advisor that was allowed to interrupt at any time and give advice. Right. So most advisors, they could advise as soon as they were asked. Right. But there was a certain kind of advisor that uh, that is told at any point, at any time you can interrupt and you can advise. That's that was the friend. That's the in 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 a covenant, the friend of the authority. Abraham is called the friend of God, and then we are called the children of Abraham, the friends of God. So our prayers are God saying, God says, pray without ceasing, because he's because our prayers are part of what brings the future to pass. That's one of his one of his um, means of bringing the future in uh, to pass. And that's why it's so important that we are praying in the spirit, that the spirit is inspiring our prayers, that we know that the spirit is within us, um, urging us into prayer in different ways, because that's the tool by which the spirit controls what comes into the future. The spirit inspires with us, within us desires and prayers, and, and we pray them to the Father, 
and the Father, then uh, we pray them to the Father through the Son, um, and the Father then directs the Spirit to direct the, a particular future to come to pass that was the plan all along, but also is inspired. The future first comes to be uh, a reality within our hearts and within our desires, and then we pray into into being by the power of the Spirit um, to the Father because we're the friend always invited to advise the future, uh, in, in, advise the authority, advise the authority. It's a different. Mm. It's a different cosmos than mm. we're told exists all around us, right? and so we're we're functional materialists thinking in terms of power struggles when we actually the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has said, "Hey, anytime you need anything, come on up to the throne." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we're in all these little petty squabbles and power struggles um, because we think that that's where the levers of the world really are. So, Jason, then what do you pray when you jumped out the airplane with no parachute? <laughs> <laughs> well, you pray lots of lots of prayers of Thanksgiving that God raises the dead because uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the ground's coming fast. Oh, you pray um, for resurrection, huh? Uh, pray, yeah, you start praying for resurrection. And then you sit on the edge of your seat and start looking for it, mm. right? Because, um, you know, the, you, you, start thinking, you start saying, okay, well, where are the bones going to rattle? Where are they going to come back together? Where's the flesh coming from? That's good. Where are the four winds to pray to? You know, that's good. That's, that's part of the story I think that I, I miss is like I keep on thinking – you're going to avoid death. Right. Right. Like that's, that's part of the narrative that I think maybe it's modernistic, but I keep on thinking, how do we avoid the death? And it's like, once you've been <laughs> cursed and you haven't repented, you don't avoid that. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you yeah. just don't avoid you. You don't avoid it. <laughs> you need to be regenerated. You need to be, you need to be revived. You need to be, come back to life. You are have gone insane, and in order to get this back right, you need to die. Yep. And that's and what, that's what. So, uh, I know you got to run. All right. Um, I do. I do. I got to run. I got to take my son over to take his uh, his drive test now. So, uh, well, y'all be good. I, I'm gonna go pray. Okay. For resurrection, okay. and then. <laughs> And then maybe maybe we can find another time to finish the conversation. Yeah. It might not be on Knox Unplugged, though. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> hey, man, appreciate you, bro. We'll talk soon. All That'll right, man. Good. Talk yeah. soon. Bye. Bye.